Hello, I'm Tim Haig. One of the pleasures of this business is that you get to meet some of your heroes. I had the privilege of interviewing Terry Pratchett several times, and he was invariably thoughtful, delightful, and ferociously smart. I freely admit to being a fan of Discworld, I've read all of them, Masquerade was the 18th of the series, and one of the best. This piece from the archive dates from 1995. Terry, people are saying embarrassing things about you, aren't they? On the back of a book it says you're as funny as Woodhouse and as witty as war. How are you supposed to uh, deal with that when you're better? Well, that's a good <laughs> that's a good opening comment, isn't it? Um, I thought I was following you up to that last word. I don't know. I don't take too much notice of that sort of thing. It, it's, it, it's, it's written by journalists. And I was a journalist for many years. Do you not write your own uh, blurb? Because it, it actually yeah. is quite funny, is the blurb on the no, inside I do, of the yeah. You always write jacket. your own blurbs. You never be beholden to no one or nobody if you can write your own blurbs. In fact, when I'm halfway through a book, I write the blurb. Because I think if I can't now, in 100 or 150 words, tell people in an interesting way what the book is about then I don't know what the book is about, and this is pretty bad going. So I always write the blurbs, yeah. How do you decide which characters are going to come back? It's Granny Weatherwax and, and Nanny Og are the, the, the um, main running characters who are, who are back in this. Although, of course, Agnes Nitt, we have met in a previous book, who, uh, right. who wants to be a, a, an opera singer. But how do you decide who, who's going to be back? explain for your listeners that aren't entirely up to speed. <laughs> there aren't any. <laughs> um, the... the uh, each Discworld book stands alone as far as I can possibly make it, but I will introduce characters that have appeared in earlier books. Um, you don't actually have to have read the earlier books, but it, maybe it just adds that little extra um, frisson to the thing if you, if you see an old character again. Some plots... Uh, tell me that they're obviously for a particular type of character and if it's the type of character that I already have, as it were, under contract, <laughs> um, then I will use that character. It's actually very similar to the big studio um, activities of the 30s and 40s. You know, you had a number of stars under contract. So it's like a rep company, isn't it? No, no, it's more like having a number of stars under contract and a good film comes along and you decide which one you're going to put in it. Um, some plots are clearly the witches' plots, as I call it. Some plots are for Rincewind the Wizard. Um, some plots are for the City Watch of Hank Moorpork. Um, it, it, it's just picking the right plot for the right character. Now, if I'm right, the only character who's been in every book is Death. Correct. And he must be the most popular character on Discworld. Absolutely, by a long way, I believe. Isn't that the damnedest thing? I don't know. Um, dinosaurs are very popular. And let's face it, had we coexisted with them, I don't think we'd have liked them very much. Um, there is... Human beings have this admirable tendency to personalise their fears and treat them in such a way that they can be made safe. And, and death on this world is this figure with the robe and the... And the size. And the it also is a bit comforting because although it, it's it's probably a void, we're not entirely clear. You have just a few moments to get used to the idea after you're killed. Well, I think the the the, 
the, the point that Death notes in, in the books is that, that the horror and terror people experience upon the realisation that they are dead uh, is ameliorated somewhat by the sudden realisation that they are still there to be horrified. <laughs> and that rather takes the sting out of it. So uh, there, there is clearly uh, some kind of existence after death on the disc world, but I don't go into too much detail. I'll try not to spoil too many of your jokes, but oh, there's a, <laughs> a wonderful passage where uh, where Granny Weatherwax gets into a, a slight contretemps with death, and when she's won, when she's won in her little her little sort of uh, you're talking about the poker game, aren't you? yes, her Bergmanian, uh, except they won't play chess because death can't stand chess. Um, she, she cures him of repetitive strain injury on that well, on that scything finger, scything, you know, it, <laughs> the same sort of actions every day. I enjoyed doing that scene; it was a lot of fun. That one worked. Uh, I yeah, thought that was brilliant. But, 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 Playing games against death is a, is a, is a, is a fairly sort of stock uh, scene in, in, in mythology, really. But that's what you do, isn't it? You take stock scenes or, or, or well-known plots and then you, you put the spin on them. You parody them or you, you, you uh, let them go in a different direction. I always get slightly uneasy about parody. Um, I think what I really do is, is go back to square one and say, you've heard this story many times and you've always made certain assumptions. Uh, and now I'm going to retell it, but you cannot assume that anything any that appears to be familiar really is the familiar thing you've always understood it to be. And that's part of the role of fantasy, I think, to show you something which you've seen so often that you no longer look at it. Uh, but to take that thing and turn it around in such a way that you see it again for the first time. It, is the philosophy intended and deliberate and worked out when you when you do this? Because there was one of your novels that had um, a philosophy of story, in which stories were flying around the universe looking for somewhere to happen. Mm. And if you tried to make the story happen in a way that wasn't consistent with the story, then things went wrong. And, and, you know, stories need to go in a certain way. Now, that was a, a philosophical framework. It was a very novelistic philosophical framework for that particular novel. And I wonder, you know, do you do that ahead of time? Do you think, I've got a, a, a theme to pursue here, but, or does it emerge? But I really did not have to invent anything. I really had to just put a spin on something that's already there. We, we say history repeats itself. We see the same things happen again and again. We say, you know, rags to rags in three generations <laughs> and all that sort of thing. We are, at, at a kind of folklore level, we are instinctively aware that there are little bits of personal history which repeat themselves over and over again in different ways around the world. You know, every time we say, he'll come to no good and things like that, we, we are acknowledging our belief that there are certain shapes in, in, in history that... that that people are bound to follow. Um, so it's a matter of just observation and, and, and bending it to my purposes. Let's talk about Masquerade in particular mm -hmm. now. Um, Agnes Nitt is a, an ambitious young woman and a large young woman who has the, uh, the, the drive to go and be a singer. She goes to Ankh-Morpork, the, uh, the city in, in the middle of... Well, it's not actually in the middle of this no, world, but it's, it's the most biggest, important yes. city, and changes her name to uh, Perdita X Nitt. Well, Perdita X Dream, um, she thinks, is a very cool name. Unfortunately, people tend to keep getting it wrong. Perdita X Nitt doesn't actually sound <laughs> that good. And, um, 
uh, yeah, but, but I, I've, it, it'll be astonished at how many young women who've been given perfectly decent names decide around the age of 15 or 16 that um, they, they want to be called something oh, I like the different. young women. I did it too. <laughs> she, she has um, a, a very carefully uh, developed relationship with uh, another would-be star, young mm. Christine. And w- one of the things I liked very much in Masquerade is the way that the, the uh, process by which Christine becomes a star. She's nobody when she turns up, like Agnes. Mm. And through a, a combination of circumstances, which I won't spoil for the reader, mm. she starts to become a star through no fault of her own, and she starts calling um, Agnes dear mm. and uh, letting her fetch the flowers. Go, could you yeah, just yeah, put yeah, them yeah, over yeah, there, dear? No. And I, th- I thought that was wonderful. But uh, again, I think this is pure observation. There is such a thing as star quality. Now, of the two of them, the best singer by far is Agnes. Christine has a voice as monotonous as a whistle, but she has a tremendous stage presence, and she looks as if she's glittering all the time. It's Madonna, isn't it? Well, <laughs> it's... Uh, it's let, let's just say that... that, that we can hear Madonna's that, lawyers that calling. In order to, that in order to, uh, to, to have a, a, a stupendous career as a singer, a good singing voice is an advantage but it's not a necessity. Bob Dylan springs to mind instantly. Well, but I would, <clears throat> let the lawyers call you, not me. <laughs> um, and I just, th- I, I just wanted to, shall we say, draw people's attention to this. And that in fact, Christine um, goes from strength to strength, effectively using Agnes's voice. Agnes's, uh, Ag- Ag- Agnes's plain, Agnes's fat, Ag- Ag- Agnes's ugly, but she's got a great voice. Whereas and a very good nature. Christine can't sing, but Christine is a star. So between the two of them, we just have one extremely good singer. That's a very Terry Pratchett device as well, isn't mm. it? That that uh, when when the things come together, the uh, I mean, it's very zen. Beauty and goodness oh, not being the, the, <laughs> the same thing at all. Mm. Uh, you, you're always doing that. You're always finding ways of of suggesting that real worth isn't where we sort of automatically oh, yeah. look for yeah. it. Yeah, that, that, that's certainly a fairly basic uh, observation in, in, in the witches' books of the Discworld. Well, exactly. The witches are exactly like that. This business with magic, you, you, you've, um, you, you show that very often the witches' magic is just a function of people's expectations. Mm-hmm. They expect the witches to be able to do certain things, and so that, that implies that, the, that they will be allowed to get away with things. But you, you also make it very clear that if they had to... The magic is there, so it, it's a sort—it's a sort of a—it's a potential, isn't it? I think uh, it's—it's um, interesting to realise, as I did after I'd written the book, that I have Granny Weatherwax, who is a witch, and, and we know that she's an extremely good witch. And throughout the books, or throughout the, this particular book, she does no magic as such. Everything she does is 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 good psychology. Um, a knowledge or a knowledge of osteopathy, or really just the ability to to stand still. Um, but but to be to be frank, her the reason she is a witch is because she's a lot brighter and more manipulative than other people. Not because she has the ability to snap her fingers and produce a magic fire. And and that's a witch quality. I mean, it, it's which quality, well. I think, which quality is to, is to think clearly. I, I won't give away the answer, but you know in the book, Granny Weatherwax tests people out 
by saying to them, if your house was on fire, what, was the, what would be the first thing you'd take out of it? Yes, where did that come from? As far as I know, I invented it. Oh, good. Right, <laughs> fine. Good, good, good. Uh, just checking, but, just checking. Um, and the, the, only, the only accurate and sensible answer she gets is from a character who is regarded by absolutely everyone else in the plot uh, as only two degrees north of a complete and utter moron. But he's... But but he thinks clearly about things, but he, but, but he doesn't make the same assumptions as other people do. And um, he doesn't impress other people as well. That, that's another point, isn't it? That people are able to dismiss him. One of the things I, that's a, a real problem with writing this book, which is largely set in the opera house, in the claustrophobic confines of the opera house, and, and which at least initially is the phantom of the opera plot, but as it would have been... Um, had there been a mix-up in the rooms and a few people had acted sensibly. Uh, you was, carefully was, don't call him the Phantom as well. Well, it's called the Opera Ghost. Yeah. Um, no, I don't, there's no... That, that's No percentage, is it? There's, there's no spin to put on that. I wanted to suggest... I, I wanted to give the... I want, what worried me about the original Phantom of the Opera plot um, was that, in a sense, the Phantom of the Opera was given... Uh, had, had a certain attraction because of his style. And it's only subsequently when you sit there, and I'm talking about uh, um, Gaston Leroux's book, which was echoed fairly faithfully, I think, in the, uh, in the musical. Subsequently, you think, hang on, he murdered at least two perfectly innocent people. Um, <laughs> he deserves to fly. You know, you don't, style that does, um, does not equate with morality. As you showed in Lords and Ladies uh, with the elves. Well, quite. Um, so I took that as a starting point, and, and then that rapidly got left behind as I developed the, the plot in its own particular way. And then there are, there are little jokes and, and asides that, uh, that I hope people will, will spot and enjoy. But the real difficulty I had was... was I ran straight into opera. I did a lot of research on it, and I, a few friends smuggled me into opera houses and things. And I found that the world of opera is... is I mean, I haven't had to exaggerate it at all in the book. If you look at it in the right kind of way, the world of opera is, is absolutely insane. It relies on insanity. Opera happens because two or three hundred people are nearly but not quite insane <laughs> on, an, on a nightly basis. That's the only way you can get it to happen. And I, got, I heard all the stories, um, which I could barely get away with in the fantasy book, uh, about you know, famous tenors turning up so, so jet-lagged. You know, they've been doing sort of uh, 79 performances in 79 days. They're not certain where they are, or indeed what the opera is. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, the, you know, the guy in the prompt box has to sing them the first few bars, and then suddenly, click, yes, it's, it's, it's La Triviata. So off he goes. This is it. He's pressed the right buttons. And I heard all the anecdotes and, and, uh, and all, all the opera gossip. And, and a lot of it in disguise found its way into the book. But I didn't really have to invent anything. The, the world of opera really is quite weird. It is not the world of a theatre with a few songs grafted on. It's, it's, it's a world of its own. There are... Um, Discworld has proliferated now. Mm. There are people out there who know more about it than you do, or, or oh, at least absolutely. remember a lot more about mm. it than you. Does that worry you at all? No, not particularly. Um, Does it ever <clears> inhibit you? There, there is... Um, 
that there are levels of reality. There is a reality in which Sherlock Holmes exists and Captain Kirk flies the Starship Enterprise. And somewhere in that reality, the Discworld exists. And I think there is no one there who really believes that the Discworld exists in the same way as this table or this microphone exists. But, you know, um, imagination is only intelligence having a bit of fun. Sometimes it's just nice to, to act as if it really existed. And people buy the, the Discworld scarves and T-shirts and models and they have fun doing it. And, and, and that's what it is. It's fun. It doesn't worry me at all. Um, if I thought someone really believed in it, like like really believed in it, then I think I might worry a little bit. Terry Pratchett, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.